If I were to ask you today to describe the essential responsibility of the Christian life, how would you respond? There are a lot of potential answers to that question. You could say it's our responsibility to be holy, and you would be right. God calls us to be holy, for He is holy. Some of you would say to be obedient, because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and you would be right. Some would say that we are to grow in sanctification, and those who are first-year Bible majors would be able to explain to us that that includes past sanctification, which covers the penalty of our sin, present sanctification, which covers the power of our sin, future sanctification, which covers the presence of our sin. And we would all give them a hand, those brilliant theologians who are freshmen. Amen? And all of those answers are right, and they're true, and they're appropriate. What I want to share from my heart with you this morning, in this time, and it is a great privilege for me to be here, I count it that. I want to thank you for the opportunity, and I thank you in advance for the fact that you're going to listen. What I want to share with you is what I understand to be the most basic essence of what it means to be a Christian, to live the life that God calls us to live as followers of Jesus Christ, and it is simply this. I understand what it means in living the Christian life that we are called to grow to be like Jesus. Nothing really profound about that. You've all heard that before. But let, re let me remind you what God's Word says. In Romans 8.29 we read, For those He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. In that very familiar passage to us in Ephesians chapter 4, we read that God gave some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to a unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, and then it says, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and craftiness of deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to, you know what it says? Grow up. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head even Christ. Let me show you one more passage. Would you turn here with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the last verse in that chapter. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. We don't have time this morning to really go into all of the depth that is contained here in the third chapter of 2 Corinthians, but I want to, as a beginning place this morning, I want to challenge you again with the fact that we are called to be like Jesus, that this should be the experience of our Christian lives. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, we read this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This to me is an amazing verse. It says that we, we are beholding and, and we can catch a glimpse of the glory that was represented in the life of our Lord Jesus. And that in some way, through the power of God working in our lives, as we continue to live and represent Him in this world, we somehow are changed into somehow a reflection of that same glory. It's a work that God does. It's nothing that we do on our own. But nevertheless, that is the reality of the vibrant, dynamic Christian life, that we become like Jesus. Now the question is this. What does that mean? What does it mean to be like Jesus? What does it mean to live the kind of life that you represent Jesus Christ? That you are being transformed into His image? That you are being conformed to the image of His Son? 
What does that mean? Does it mean you have a special way that you look? You know, when I was in seminary, there were some of those guys that they just, they looked that way, you know? Like they were trying to look like Jesus. I can't really explain that. And you, if you haven't experienced that, you will sooner or later. I grew up in the Midwest, and uh, so I don't know this by experience, but they tell me that back in the late 60s and early 70s, if you were out here in California, you could go out to the beaches and you would see guys that walked around and they looked like Jesus. You know, they had beards and they had robes on, and from what I understand, about a third of them would claim to be Jesus, and about another third really believed they were Jesus. But we know that it has nothing to do with the way you look. There are some people that think that what it means to be like Jesus is that you are able to do the works that Jesus did. And therefore that in your life, miracles and signs and wonders should follow. I saw a really interesting and enlightening interview with John Wimber one night. And he said that when he got saved, one of the primary drives after his salvation was that he wanted to do the stuff that Jesus did. And so he came to church and he kept saying, when do we get to do the stuff? And they looked at him rather strange and he kept saying, when do we get to do the stuff? And finally they said, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, raising the dead and healing people and, and walking on water. When do we get to do the stuff? And his understanding was, and unfortunately it seems to have affected his theology over the years, but his understanding was that that is what it means to be like Jesus. That we're able to do signs and wonders. Well, we understand that these are inaccurate perceptions of what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. But what do we mean? How can we know that we are growing in Christ-likeness? How can we know that we are pursuing and proceeding along toward that goal? How can we know that we're hitting what we're shooting for? How can we gauge our progress? Let me give you another passage. And I think I find in it the essence of what it means to be like Jesus. It's in the book of John, the first chapter. Would you turn there with me? John chapter 1. You surely know by now that this is an amazing chapter, that this is a, a deep and profound introduction to an amazing book as the writer John lays out event by event the proofs that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And he begins the book with an awesome and awe-inspiring exposition of who Jesus is as the Word. And then we come down to verse 14 of the first chapter of John and look at it with me. It says there in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've heard that so much, it's almost an afterthought to us. The Word, the eternal Word, God Himself, became flesh and dwelt among us. You've probably heard the song that Joan Osborne sings, at best, enigmatically, and at worst, it's probably blasphemous. Where she says, what if God were one of us, just a stranger on a bus? And the tragic thing is, evidently they've lost the understanding or they've never known that God was one of us. That the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. And then it says, and we beheld His glory. Now we just read about glory in 2 Corinthians 3. It says that somehow we are being changed into that same glory. We beheld His glory. There's real irony here. God the Word became flesh and it was when He became flesh that we finally beheld His glory. God had revealed Himself in creation. He had revealed Himself in history. He had revealed Himself in our conscience. All of those aspects of natural revelation. But we didn't really know God until He revealed Himself in the flesh. And when He did, we beheld His glory. Now, how did they behold His glory? Well, certainly they saw His glory at the transfiguration. You remember that amazing event? 
But they also saw his glory when he did miracles and they saw his glory when he taught. They certainly saw his glory when he died on the cross, when he conquered death and resurrection. And then when he ascended into heaven, they had seen his glory. He goes on to talk about it. It says, it was glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It is only God's only begotten Son that could have that kind of glory. And then he describes it. And this is the thought I want to leave you with you this morning. This is the thought I want to develop. And I hope it can be helpful to you because in many ways it has changed my life. I know that sounds trite. But I sat where you sat 20 years ago. Not in this school, but in a Bible college in the Midwest. Trying to figure out where my life was going. Eager to serve God. Eager to have an effective ministry in some way or another. I wish someone 20 years ago had sat down and tried to teach me what I have learned about this next phrase. Because it says, here's what Jesus was like. If you want to know what Jesus was, if you want to know how the glory of the Father was revealed, if you want to get a handle on it, if you want to have a grasp of what it means to be like Jesus, look at the end of John 1.14. He was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. What, those, what do those words mean? What is that concept? What is this grace and what is truth? We've lost perspective of it. We've all heard it so often. It's hard for us to really grasp. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. It is that kindness and that mercy that God gives to us and we have absolutely no claim to it. There is nothing that we can point to in and of ourselves and say, God, here's the reason you should be kind to me. Here's the reason you should favor me. Here's the reason you should bless me. No, everything God ever does for us is on the basis of His loving grace. It's unmerited favor. Jesus was full of that. He was full of that willingness and that desire to bless people in spite of themselves. But He was also full of truth. What is truth? Truth is unmitigated fact. Truth can't be changed. It can't be compromised. When we bend or when we twist the truth, we understand it is no longer the truth at all. And Jesus was not only full of grace, but He was full of truth. And that truth to me represents, and I think in Scripture we'll see, that it represents that, that awesome standard of who God is. The, the acknowledgement and the comprehension of all of His holiness and all of His righteousness and all of His justice. Those things which will never change. That standard which is reality. Which is something which lasts forever and nothing will ever change it. And Jesus was full of truth. It was unbending. And truth, the reality of God's awesome holiness that is especially expressed in His Word. Truth reveals the fact that we're hopeless. But the good news is that also grace, which is God reconciling us to Himself, it's God's favor toward us, even though we don't deserve it, grace makes up the difference. And Jesus was full of both. And my thesis to you this morning is that if we're going to be like Jesus, we must be full of both. You say, well, you know, I think you're making, you've been up there in the mountains too long with Kevin. By the way, you understand the reason we hired Kevin is because we've heard persecution is coming and I wanted a bodyguard. <laughs> we have steps at our church and whenever Kevin and I are up front together, I make him stand on the step way below me. So, Anyway, Kevin and Rebecca have been a delight to our ministry. We love them and appreciate them. 
But as we have looked at this, maybe you think, you know, you've been up there in the hills too long and you've lost perspective. I mean, you're making a big deal about it. And when I first began to look at this subject of being full of grace and truth, I wondered, how valid is this? Is just this just a, a kind of a isolated comment in Scripture? So I went to the Old Testament and I looked at what, first of all, as we're going to see what the Lord has revealed in the Old Testament. The Lord revealed it. The Lord revealed the fact that grace, or in the Old Testament, the word that primarily is used more than grace is mercy or loving kindness, that his characteristics can be understood by putting together loving kindness or grace or mercy and truth. For instance, right here in John 1, when we talk about the Old Testament law, the law was something which brought condemnation and brought Certainly, there was provision for salvation. But look at verse 17, right here in John 1. Just a few verses after we've read in verse 14. It says there, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps that would lead you to believe that there was no grace and there was no truth until Christ came, but such is not the case. In the book of Exodus, chapter 34, when the Lord is giving the law to Moses... He says, I am abounding in, watch it, loving kindness and truth. You are receiving my law, God says to Moses. This is who I am and this is how you are to live. And it is a representation of my truth. But lest you become dismayed, lest you end up in despair, I am not only truth, but I am what? I am mercy. Even back then, there was that understanding. Now, I want you to note carefully here this morning... Mercy and truth, grace and truth together, this is not a matter of compromise. It's not a matter where at one time or another you bend or you do away with one in order to yield and have the other. The text says Jesus was full of grace and truth. You can't try to blend the two, watering them down. Truth watered down is no longer truth. Grace watered down becomes something that we deserve and is no longer truly grace. It's full of grace and truth. This is the nature of God. And this is the nature of Jesus Christ. And we are called to live it out in our lives. To be honest, I was astounded how often these two concepts are linked in the Old Testament. Just from the book of Psalms, let me give you some examples. Psalm 25, the psalmist says, All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. Psalm 26, For thy loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. Psalm 40, thy loving kindness and thy truth will continually preserve me. That's in Psalm 57. Psalm 85, loving kindness and truth have met together. Psalm 85, but thou, O Lord, art a God abundant in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 117, for his loving kindness is great toward us and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Now I want you to look at it this way. The God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, was a God of grace or mercy and truth. If he had only been a God of truth, he could not have been worshipped. Because there would have been no access. The people would not have been worthy. If it were only his truth which condemns us, which manifests his holiness and which sheds the spotlight upon our unworthiness... There would have been no basis for worshiping God if God were truth and truth alone, but He's not. And the understanding all through the Old Testament is that God is not only truth, but He is also what? Loving kindness. He is mercy. By the way, notice this. If God were only mercy, 
he would not be worthy of worship. There would be no standard to hold him in awe. If he were only some touchy-feely, um, just get along with everybody, we're going to let you slide. Truth is not important. Principle is not important. Right and wrong don't matter because after all, I'm a God of mercy. That's not true mercy at all to begin with. But he would not be worthy of our praise or our worship. But he is both. He is both worthy and we are made worthy. We are made worthy by his mercy. And he is worthy because of his amazing truth. Because of his commitment to righteousness. Because of his nature, which is holy and just. Now, not only did the Lord reveal it in the Old Testament, but I want to show you how Christ demonstrated it. And to do that, we'll stay right here in the book of John. Go with me, if you will. First of all, to John chapter 4. A familiar story to us. The story of the woman at the well. And I want you to see how Jesus was full of grace and truth. Full of grace in that he offers her living water from which she will never thirst. And she was a woman who was unworthy. She was a woman who had a bad reputation. She had nothing to commend herself. She had no basis to claim on her own. And yet look at in John chapter 4. Look in verse 10. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Go down and look at verse 13. Jesus answered and said, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This was a sinful woman who didn't deserve it, who could not earn it, who was not worthy of it. And Jesus was full of grace and he offered her living water. But you know what? He was also full of truth as well. Because look in the same passage. For instance, look at verse 16. He calls into account for her sin. You remember the story. In verse 16 he says, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Do you understand what Jesus is doing? He's confronting her with, his, with her sin. He is full of grace. He says, you can have this living water if you'll but receive it. But at the same time, he's also full of truth. He says, you've got to face your sin. God just doesn't ignore it. It just doesn't go away. It has to be dealt with. God is full of grace and truth. And Jesus represented that when the Word was made flesh. He does the same thing with her false doctrine. Look down to verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. And he goes on to talk to her about true worship. What is he saying? He's saying, my grace offers you salvation and it's free. You cannot earn it. It is available to you. But listen, you have to understand your sin is real and your doctrine is wrong. He was full of grace and truth. My favorite account of this is in John chapter 8. Turn there. John chapter 8, the story of the woman who was taken in adultery, brought and thrown at the feet of Jesus. Because in one verse, in one verse, Jesus sums up his commitment, his nature of grace and truth. You remember the story? They brought the woman, didn't bring the man, they brought the woman, they laid her before Jesus, they asked him a question to try to trick him. He said, who's ever without sin, cast the first stone. They all left. They were there alone. She said, he said, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none, Lord. And look what he says in verse 11. Now notice, this is a sinful woman taken in the very sin of sexual immorality. And in verse 11, he says, full of grace and truth. He says, neither do I condemn thee. What is that? Say it. That's grace. 
Neither do I condemn thee. But then what else does he say? Go and sin no more. What is that? That's truth. That's a demand to measure up to God's standard, to say, this is holiness, and I won't ignore one for the other. I will not condemn you. I will extend to you grace, but at the same time, go and sin no more. Maintain that commitment to righteousness and truth and holiness. He was full of grace and truth. I think it's implied also in the story of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Turn to chapter 13 and we'll see that. John 13. What a great story. There's so much in here we could talk about. But essentially, Jesus, because of the pride and the unwillingness of his disciples to serve one another, he, in a very physical and real demonstration, he humbles himself and he washes their feet. The job of a servant. And that, to me, represents, again, grace. Because he did not have to. They did not deserve it. it far different. They should have been washing his feet, right? And yet, graciously, he served them. He was full of grace. But now be careful, because he also maintains a commitment to truth. And I find this just in one verse, but to me it's so interesting. I would have loved to have heard Jesus say this. It's in verse 13. Look at it. He's beginning to teach them now. And he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. It's as though he's saying, don't get the wrong idea. You see that? I've served you, but I'm still master. It's like that bumper sticker that says, because I'm the parent, that's why, right? Because I said so. Jesus says, don't misunderstand. I have washed your feet. I have demonstrated servanthood to you. You are to serve one another in this way. But listen, make sure you know something. I'm not only gracious, but I am still the holy God of Israel. I am the master. I am the teacher. I am Lord. A commitment to truth and grace. We could go to the story of the restoration of Peter at the end of the book of John. In John chapter 21, you know the story, we won't turn there. To me, there's another beautiful example of Jesus being full of grace and truth. What did he do with Peter? You remember, he called him to account by saying, Peter, do you love me? And how many times did he ask him? Three times. How many times did Peter deny? Three times. He was calling him in remembrance and he was restoring him. But in restoration, he was calling him to accountability as well. He was willing to restore him to a place of, of usefulness and fellowship and even service. But at the same time, he would not ignore the failure of Peter. He demanded that that be addressed. There's a beautiful blend there of Jesus saying, yes, I'm gracious, but I am also committed to truth. I am full of grace and truth. It was revealed by the Lord in the Old Testament. And it was demonstrated by Christ. But you know, there's no place that you see grace and truth in a fuller and a clearer way than on the cross. Because why was Jesus on the cross? He was on the cross because there was a debt that had to be paid. The debt of our sin. God could not just write it off. Because God is truth. And there is holiness there and there is righteousness there and there is justice there and there must be a penalty paid for the sin, the violation of God's holiness. But God is also gracious. And Jesus was full of truth, but he was full of grace. And so Jesus says, I will stand in the place. I will bear the price. I will provide redemption. Nowhere is it clear, more clearly seen than on the cross. Jesus, full of grace and truth. There's an amazing verse in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 6, that says this. 
By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. Let me read that again. By mercy and truth, iniquity is atoned for. That's the cross. That's the cross. Now the Lord revealed it. The Christ demonstrated it. The church is to live it. We are to live like Jesus. We are to be full of grace and truth. David the psalmist says, I have not concealed thy mercy and thy truth from the great congregation. Solomon the wise man said, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Kindness and truth, according to Proverbs chapter 3. And then look at a New Testament passage, which I think speaks to the same thing. Second Peter chapter 3. Would you turn there with me? Second Peter chapter 3. The very last verse of this brief apostolic letter. Second Peter chapter 3. And we'll look at verses 17 and 18. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Now there's a danger here because we are surrounded by unprincipled men. There's a danger that we will be influenced and that we will fall away, that we will be carried away. We want some stability. We want to find the way to, to live this life and to manifest the life that God calls us to. So we're not influenced by this unprincipled living. How can we do that? Look at verse 18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge. Now let me ask you, what is knowledge? Knowledge is an awareness and apprehension of what? Of truth. Grace and truth. It's to fill our lives. Now, let me show you as carefully as I can my concern and my passion about this. Our tendency is we tend to neglect one or the other. Grace to the neglect of truth. A person who lives that way who is so impassioned and empowered and concerned about grace that they neglect the truth. They live carnal, licentious lives. At least that's the possibility, the tendency, the trend. It results in weakness. You find a church that only emphasizes grace, doesn't give attention to truth, you'll find a church which rarely challenges its people, which rarely confronts sin, which rarely corrects. And when it does teach, it rarely teaches clearly or courageously. Why? Because there's this tendency in many people and in some ministries to focus so much on God's wondrous grace that they neglect the truth. You've seen that. You're aware of it. And that's probably the reason that most of you are here at Master's College because you're concerned about a commitment to the truth. But you know we have to be careful because there's also a tendency to emphasize so much truth to the, to the neglect of grace that we get into trouble as well. We end up cold and callous and proud and legalistic. It results in harshness. It results in an attitude where we emphasize the truth so much and we care so little about God's grace or we give it so little attention that we, be, we become petty and we become harsh. I like that line in that Wayne Watson song where he says, how the friends of Jesus ever get so mean? And you know that, you see that. Sometimes that's a problem when we give such a high view of truth. And by the way, we should never de-emphasize the truth. We should never lower it 
in its standard. Because remember, if you lower truth, if you do away with its purity, it is no longer truth at all. The problem is this, of giving attention only to truth and neglecting grace. You find a church which honors truth to the neglect of grace. You'll find a church which rarely loves. It rarely embraces. It rarely forgives. It, When it does teach, it rarely it teaches very rarely, tenderly and patiently. It doesn't know how to do that because it's so focused on the truth that it neglects this wonderful provision of God's grace. And how does this apply in your life? Maybe it applies with your roommate. Maybe you've got a roommate that needs to hear the truth. Did I hear an amen this morning? But on the other hand, maybe you have a roommate that needs some grace extended to them. Maybe you have a roommate that needs to see a little bit of the unconditional love that God demonstrates for you and that He accepts and forgives you and yet you're being petty and unforgiving with your roommate. Or perhaps you have a roommate that's headed off on its own way, on his or her own way, and they're making choices that you know are wrong and you need to confront them with the truth. If we're going to be like Jesus, our life must manifest a commitment to both grace and truth. We have to be willing to be compassionate and forgiving where that's called. We must be willing to tell the truth boldly and lovingly, but tell the truth when it has to be told. To hold to that standard of righteousness and to extend compassion and grace exactly the way God does with us. What about your mother father? Some of our parents failed us. Some of our parents don't know the Lord. Some of them are backslidden. They've walked away from their commitment to Christ. They need to see demonstrated in your life. They need to see a commitment to both God's truth, which is unchanging, and God's grace, which is unconditional and amazing. What about your husband or your wife if you're here and you're married? Relationships in families can sometimes be strained. I've not seen yet a perfect marriage. And we need to have this understanding that sometimes our spouse, our husband, or our wife, they need to see the grace of God demonstrated because they're not perfect. And you know the truth, neither are we. But they also sometimes need to hear the truth of God. What about your ministry, whatever it is? You work in a church, your future ministry as you're preparing now, will you be able to find this commitment to be committed to both grace and truth? Because one without the other is only half the issue. And then what about the lost? The people all around us. Don't you see? They need to hear the truth. They need to see it. They need to see God's people full of truth, concerned about the things that are really true, that are really right, that really matter. And the reason they need to see it is this, is because the Bible tells us that they continually, if they're lost, they push it away. Romans chapter 1. That they repress the truth. They push it away. And they've come to doubt that it even exists. But like Jimmy Hoffa who said, I may have a lot of faults, but being wrong ain't one of them. And that's a philosophy of the world in which we live. In his book, A Generation of Seekers, Wade Roof writes this. It's a book about baby boomers and they're returning to some kind of spirituality, though it certainly is not the kind of spirituality in most cases that we would acknowledge. But he writes about Barry. Barry, who likes the church that he's in now because it doesn't have any rigid beliefs or guidelines. He writes about Pam, who sees religion as a very private matter and as something which ought not interfere in any way with family relations. 
He talks about Pam a little further. He notes that she worries that her children could come out of the influence of born-again Christians, which would be awful, she says. She tries not to think about the big questions. She mainly wants to be comfortable and to have a nice, ordinary, pleasant family life. Is there any kind of ultimate meaning in life? She prefers not to think about such things. She says, I want to guarantee that I'm going to live and my kids are going to live and my husband is going to live, but there is no such thing. That's why I don't think about it. I guess I believe in fate, a religion in its own sort of way. When your number is up, your number is up. I just don't want my number to be up. That person needs to know that there's such a thing as truth. That dear lady needs to be told that there are eternal truths which existed in eternity before she lived and will go on existing long after her death. She needs to know that there's something to believe in. But can you also sense the sadness in her voice? Can you sense the hopelessness? Can you sense the fact that she's just hanging on, hoping that nothing bad happens, trying to find meaning in life from day to day? Let me tell you, those people, the people all around us who don't know Christ, they not only need the truth, but they also need grace. Because they've been beaten up. They're searching for hope in a hopeless world. As we say around our place, they've got holes in their hearts. They've got places that God wants to fill and that only God can fill. And they need to know the truth, but they also need to know the message of grace. When I think about this deep need that is in people all around us, that they are longing to know the same thing that they push away. They need to hear a message of truth and grace. I, I think of the story that I heard that comes from a book called The Whisper Test by Marianne Bird. You probably have heard this story because it's going around right now, but it's such a great story, I can't resist sharing it with you. Marianne Bird grew up knowing that she was different. She hated it. She was born with a cleft palate. And when she started school, her classmates made it clear how they felt about her. A little girl with a misshapen lip, a crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When schoolmates would ask, what happened to you? She'd tell them that she had fallen. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born that way. She was convinced that no one outside her family could really love her, could really accept her. Until that very important day in second grade, when a teacher changed it all. The teacher was adored by all her students. Her name was Mrs. Leonard. She was short, round, and happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, they had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally, it was Mary Ann's turn. She knew from previous years that as each child stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and the child was to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? Marianne waited there for those words that now she believes God must have put into the teacher's lips. Those seven words that changed her life. Because as little Marianne, misshapen, unloved, all alone, stood against that door with her hand clasped over one of her ears, she heard her teacher whisper, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my Luke. Don't you see that the message of grace is that that's what God says to this world? He says, I wish you were mine. I love you. 
I have a place for you. I desire that you come to me. I love you so much that I gave my son that he might die to cover the debt of your sins. And he lives in the power of the resurrection to offer you life. I wish you were mine. The embrace of grace. Too much grace or truth? Never. But too little of either? Often, I'm afraid. God calls us to live like Jesus. To live full of grace and truth. What's your need? I mean, how are you bent in your life? Do you have a tendency to love the truth so much that you are really quick to cut people off at the knees? To show them little patience, little compassion, no grace? On the other hand, you have such a soft heart, you care about people so much, do you want to demonstrate compassion and love so much that it's hard for you to draw a line, to have a standard? It's hard for you to commit to confronting wrong and holding to the standard of holiness and absolute truth that God gives us. What is your weakness? Where are you? I'm afraid all of us are one place or the other. I had a lady in our church who said, well, don't you think that if we're just trying to be like Jesus, then we'll have that imbalance? And I said, no, that's the problem, that we never get to be ultimately like Jesus until we're with Jesus. We're all striving in that, and the, and the striving and the struggle is part of being full of grace and truth. And the tendency is, is that sometimes we choose one or the other, and God calls us to choose both. There's one more analogy I'll give you, and with this I'll close today. It's the analogy of a shepherd. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the great shepherd, and as ministers and pastors, those of us who are preparing for that or who are participating in that ministry, whatever ministry you have, if you're a supervisor here, a resident assistant, if you're a teacher, if you're involved in any kind of ministry, you're called to shepherd your people. A shepherd has to have this, this commitment in his life to both tenderness and toughness. You know, there's a time when those sheep... They just need to, need to put that hook around their neck and just jerk them and get them back in the line. Toughness. But you know what? The, the picture of the Good Shepherd is also that he takes up the broken sheep and tenderly he binds their wounds. And you know the reason they often get wounded is because they strayed on their own, right? And yet it's that tenderness and that toughness of a shepherd. I don't know if this will help you today. I can just tell you that for me, it's changed the way I look at my ministry. I don't have to choose. I just have to concentrate on truth and grace. I don't have to choose whether I'm going to follow truth and neglect grace. I don't have to choose if I'm going to be compassionate and not commit to the truth. No, I have the responsibility to fulfill both. And that keeps me headed in the right direction. It keeps me to have a heart for God and a head for God. It keeps me to, in the place where I love His Word and where I also love the people that hear His Word. I hope I'm growing to be like Jesus. Now, if we had another hour, I could let my wife and my sons come up here and they'd show you how I'm not, probably. But I'm in the journey. And what I found in the journey is it's helpful to me to keep as my goal, just like Jesus, to be full of grace and truth. That's my challenge to you this morning. Would you stand with me and we'll be dismissed together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We are not living at the time in which Jesus walked upon the earth, and so we would be at a loss to understand the revelation of who Jesus was and is were it not for the precious Word of God, which reveals your nature to us. 
Lord, we focus this morning upon one specific quality, one synthesis of a, of a wonderful duo of qualities which are part of your nature. Your loving kindness, your mercy, your grace, and your absolute commitment to truth. And God, we see that in our lives, it's very easy for us to emphasize one to the, the neglect of the other. In our ministries, it's very easy for us to do so. I pray, God, that you would impress upon our hearts this morning the importance of a full life of following Jesus, of a desire to see the image of Christ formed in our lives every day. And Lord, teach us as students, as sons and daughters, as husbands and wives, as professors, as laborers here in the school, teach us, Lord, to live lives full of your wondrous grace and your absolute life-changing truth. Make it true. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. You're dismissed.